All right, so we're talking specifically this last session. I appreciate I'm the only person standing between you and getting to leave um, again. And so I'm going to try to keep to time. Again, managed right on the dot last time. Um, no promises this time. Um, but let's, uh, let's go. I want to talk about developing leaders in hard places, really essentially uh, discipleship. What does it look like to train up and to raise up church planters, pastors, ministry workers that are going to do ministry in places where life is hard and just living and doing ministry is hard. We talk about leaders, it's really it's an issue of, of discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? One of the things I love to, to do is uh, read biographies of, of um, particularly missionaries, but also some ministry leaders in the past. I don't know, you may have heard of a guy named Richard Wormbrandt. Um, who was a, one of the founding uh, figures in Voice of the Martyrs, um, ministry to the persecuted church. Uh, he lived from 1909 to 2001, was an evangelical minister in Romania, and is widely recognized as one of the Romania's greatest Christian leaders and authors. Now, after the Second World War, Romania fell under communism, and the communists began seizing churches and clergy. Pastor Wombrandt began a a ministry to minister to the underground churches in Romania. He also began a ministry to evangelize to the Russian soldiers um, that were in uh, Romania at that time. Eventually, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, he and his wife were arrested in 1948, um, were sent to a, um, a prison camp, and his wife uh, was uh, sent into slave labor. He ended up working on the Danube Canal as a slave laborer. But he said this in his book, Tortured for Christ. He said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. So a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of pre preaching. So we accepted their deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. <laughs> now think about that. And is, if that's just, is that the kind of heart that we have as a believer? Will we still be happy preaching and doing ministry? And that, again, he said this, Did I believe in God? Now the test had come. I was all alone. There was no salary to earn. There were no golden opinions to consider. God offered me only suffering. Would I still love him? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Are there these super Christians like Wormbrand who sacrifice it all and do the hard things in the hard places? And then there are the rest of us who seek to live a life of ease and comfort. Church in hard places exist because ministry in a place of deep poverty is difficult. And if we're honest, few people desire to do it. Those Christians who do come from areas of poverty often lack access to training or resources, feel marginalized and neglected. Many of them who do manage to leave their community to pursue theological education are trained to do ministry in a place where they did not come from. And if we're honest, most of them have no desire to return to. So how do we grow men and women in our churches, to be truly committed to Jesus, no matter where we are. 
willing to do the hard things in the hard places, to live in the hard places, to build churches where there are none. Where, the, where are the godly leaders of our churches willing to sacrifice, willing to suffer as they press on in the work of building healthy churches in the city slums and our poor rural villages? There's a reason why the least reached parts of our cities tend to be the poorest parts of our cities. Because there's no money in it and few of us want to go there. The truth is, if we're going to see churches planted and leaders trained in the hardest places, then we need to change the way we understand what it means to be a disciple of, of Jesus. What are we looking for in our church leaders? Well, let's, let's ask Jesus. Let's look to what he looks for. If we would turn again to Luke 9, I'm going to read from verse 23 to 27. Luke chapter 9 from verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will never taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, Lord, just the day is it's getting on, it's, it's hot, and we may be weary. But Lord, I pray, Father, that you would give us alertness, attentive hearts, that our hearts would burn as we hear your scriptures speak to us. Lord, do that now, we pray, for we long, we long to see Jesus. In his name, amen. Well, Jesus is speaking again to his disciples, and he's giving them the marks of what it means to follow him. He's, he's telling all of them, and this is not just like I said, are there two groups of Christians, the super Christians, and then the rest of us. He's, he's giving one set of standards for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the first mark is this, self-denying. A follower of Christ denies himself. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So the first clue we have about what it means to be a the true disciple of Jesus, a leader of the church, is that a disciple must first deny himself. Now Jesus is clear. He's, he's speaking to all of us. He says this means anyone. This is for you. This is for me. This is not just an expectation of a certain subgroup of Christians. Anyone, not one of us, is off the hook. We all need to live this kind of life, and yet... This is a hard life to live. What does a self-denying life look like in a selfie world? Where we are perpetually drawing attention. You like that? You like that, family, didn't you? you? like that. It's tweetable. We should tweet that. Um, we're, we're constantly drawing attention to ourselves and, and our own story and, and what we're doing and, and what we just ate for lunch. That's the last thing I posted. And what, we are, what we're going to, and we're constantly, it's all about us and our world and you just happen to be in it and you get to observe it. 
I mean, that's our view of life. But Jesus says, no, if you want to come and follow me, you are to deny yourself. Deny yourself. You see, you'll never see Jesus until you get over yourself. You cannot be full of yourself and full of Christ. It is impossible. Many people follow Jesus for as long as Jesus does for them what they want him to do for them. For as long as Jesus makes them feel better about themselves, help them get what they want. Let me ask you this question. What is it in your life right now that were God to take it away from you would cause you to stop worshipping him? It's a gut-wrenching question. It's a gut-wrenching question. Your health, your family, your job, your home. What is it that you have in your life right now that you'd really wonder, would I still worship Him? Would I still love Him? Would I still trust Him? That's what he's getting at here. That's what it means to deny yourself. To deny myself is to look at my old self, my old life, my unredeemed, cursed, spiritually dead self, and to say, I'm done with you. You cannot come where I am now going. I'm going to Jesus. You see, our old self, when we are at the center of our life, that old self, it loves to be praised. Our old self, it loves to be celebrated. It loves to be made much of. It loves approval. It loves glory. It loves comfort and it loves security. It craves all of those things. And if we're, oftentimes we mistakenly think that following Jesus is how I get those things. But no, Jesus is clear, no. To follow me means you deny yourself. You deny yourself. You see, the old self says, it's all about me. Look at me. The new self says, no, it's all about Jesus. Look at Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Do you see how it's completely impossible to take your old self with you? It's what repentance means. It's turning away, leaving behind, turning to Christ. That's what it means to deny yourself. To deny yourself means godly leaders are self-deniers. We're self-deniers. One of the reasons why we won't move to, live amongst, do ministry amongst the poor is because we don't really understand what it means to deny ourselves. We don't really think that applies to us in the same way. But a godly leader lives a self-denying life. But secondly, a godly leader lives a life of, of almost a dangerous devotion to Jesus. A dangerous devotion. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And then he says, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, Jesus has been really deliberate in, in, in the use of his words here. Jesus obviously understands what the cross is going to mean to them. But at this moment, at this time, as he says that, when he's talking to, to Peter and James and John and, and Andrew, when, when he speaks of the cross, the only thing they see is the most horrific, terrifying form of execution. In fact, Jesus had just prophesied to his disciples that he was going to be condemned and killed. And Peter had said to him, no way, no way, I will not let that happen to you. They can't imagine that. They cannot imagine a suffering Savior. And yet Peter, uh, and then Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind you, Satan. Get behind him, Satan. 
You know, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means take up your cross and follow me. The most shameful way to die, the most horrific way to die, the most humiliating, painful. It's the picture of the curse. And yet, you know, for us, we read this verse, take up your cross, and, you know, we have sanitized the cross. We've made the cross into something safe and sanitary, just a, a charm that we wear around our necks, something we put uh, in our cars or on, a, on our Bibles. It's just something, a, a little emblem of something of hope. But to these men, the cross meant pain. It meant suffering. It meant humiliation. Jesus saying, if you want to follow me daily, take up your cross and, and follow me. And they're like, what does that mean? What does it even mean? This is not what we signed up for. What is Jesus telling them? If you want to follow me, it means you are running headfirst against every power and ruler on earth. If you want to follow me, it means that you are running into the enemy's camp. You are running against everything. The whole world is against us. If you want to follow me, then it's not a way to become popular. It's not a way to become famous. It's not a way to ease or comfort or security. If you want to follow me, everything is against you. Sin, Satan, hell, and the principalities of darkness in the entire world will come against you if you want to follow me. Because you are retreating from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the cost. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's to set your mark with Him and to set your mark against the rest against the world who's turned against him. You see, Jesus, as we said earlier, he's not a beggar standing at the door wishing that we would follow him and open the door, let him into our hearts so that we might somehow find a sense of purpose, a sense of ease, a sense of comfort. He's not a beggar knocking. Instead, he's a king demanding, summoning us to come to him. But the whole idea of ease and comfort and security is all an illusion. It's an illusion. There is no security here outside of Christ. There is no comfort here outside of Christ. There is no safety here outside of Christ. The safest, most secure, most comfortable place you'll ever be, no matter where your feet have led to tread on this earth, are in the arms of Christ. It's the only place of safety and security and comfort. And if the world, the world dangles in front of us this illusion of comfort, the illusion of prosperity, the illusion of health, the illusion of safety. It's a lie. Satan would have you believe that following Jesus is cheap or easy. It will make you rich and powerful. Remember when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness? What's he tempting him with? What's he tempting Jesus with in the wilderness? He's tempting him with glory. He's tempting him with wealth. He's tempting him with power. He's tempting him with comfort. You know what he's tempting Jesus with? He's saying, you can have glory without the cross. You can have wealth without the cross. You can have power without the cross. You can have comfort without the cross. It's always the lie of Satan. And he's telling you that same lie every day. That you can have comfort and ease and safety and security without the cross. It's an illusion. It's a lie. It's there to trip us up, to, to seduce us. 
That same lie has been thrown at us. It's been thrown at our kids every day of the week. It's been thrown at all of us, our churches, the people who sit in front of us, saying that you can be made much of, you can be comfortable, you can be celebrated, you can do all of this without suffering. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Pick up your cross. Do not buy the lie. Deny yourself. And if you do, then know what it means. It means giving up your comfort, your ease, your popularity, your fortune. But there is a crown. There is a a greater comfort and a greater power and a greater glory and a greater ease and a greater prosperity that I hold out for you. But to get there, you must hold up the cross. The road road is, is paved with shame often, with humiliation often, with suffering often. John Calvin said this, All things around us are in opposition to God's promises. So what is to be done? We must pass by ourselves so nothing hinders our believing that God is true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, one who suffered much for the cause of the gospel, he wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, He bids him, come and die. So what must this mean for us? That these are easy words to say. These are easy words to say. But what are we looking for in godly leaders? What are we looking for in ourselves? I pray to God that he doesn't lead you into much suffering, pain, hardship, persecution. It's certainly right that we pray that he doesn't lead us into that. But were he to do so, would you still consider him worthy of your worship? Would you still consider him worthy of your praise? Martin Luther, when he came to Christ, said this, This grace had cost him his very life and must continue to cost him the same price day by day. second mark of a godly leader is dangerously devoted to Jesus. third mark is this, eternally minded eternally minded. Again, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is saying these things. He knows what he's saying to his disciples is hard. These are hard truths to bear. So he doesn't just say, hey guys, it's going to be fun. So deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, and then goes on. And they, where are they? They're not following him. Instead, he knows what's going on in their hearts. What's going on in their hearts? What's going on in ours right now? Saying, that's hard. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can press on in that. So Jesus changes their perspective. He changes their perspective. When I, I have a fear of heights, terrified of heights. I have vertigo, get really bad, get really dizzy. Um, when I uh, go up a ladder or, or on a high building or whatever. I remember being on a plane um, and I was in Japan and I, uh, there's a guy who was in the Air Force and he said, hey, let me take you on a, a plane ride to go around Mount Fuji. And so that sounds cool. And so my wife gave me her camera and we just, I met her, I met him at the airfield and I got to this plane that was probably smaller than my car. Um, had a single prop plane and tiny little plane and then 
um, I remember vividly getting in it and closing the door, and it had like one of those crank windows in it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it did. Like at least it had something open, and a little knob that you close, you lock the door on. Anyway, this plane came up. So I was always terrified at this point. It's completely terrified. And then this plane took up, took off, and it's, you know, sometimes if you've been on a plane, they make some noises that can be terrifying. And so this plane makes this noise, and then all of a sudden, now in that moment, you think it's over, right? You're convinced it's over, but apparently it just kind of levels off. And I am so terrified that this plane is going to somehow decompose in the air um, or, or fall out of the sky or hit a mountain that I did not once look out the window or take a photograph. <laughs> and so by the time I got to the ground, I was so glad to get out of that thing. Um, Tracy, my wife's like, hey, let me see your pictures. Like, pictures? Oh, yeah, I was supposed to be up there. You know, the same is true for us. We need to change our perspective because when we go through suffering, all we see is our suffering. When we go through seasons of trial and hardship, that's all we can see. And Jesus knows that. And what he says to his disciples next is, is, this comes from a man who loves them, who cares for his disciples. He says, I know this is hard. But let me tell you this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will save it. Just look, look up. Don't, just look at what you're gaining. Look at where you're going, not how you're getting there. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Keep your eyes fixed on the destination. And we're going to be so caught up in the journey, the hardships, the struggle, the difficulty, the pain, the suffering, that we lose confidence in the destination. And we lose confidence in the one who's getting us to the destination. But Jesus reminds us, everything you're losing, you're going to lose it anyway. But everything you're gaining, you're going to keep forever. This is a good deal. This is a good deal. This self-denying, cross-taking life is the only way to save our souls. Everything else around us is dying. We're dying. The body you have, it is dying. It is corrupted by sin. We are dying. We are decomposing. We are falling apart. We're going to fall out of the sky and hit a mountain any minute. This body is failing us. This life it's fleeting. There is sin and darkness. We live in a crooked and corrupt age. There is hate and death. The world is dying, so why would you think that any sense of hope or ease is here? The world is dying, so why would you put any, any comfort here? The wages of sin is death. We're condemned under a curse. Evenly, even terminally sick people have their good days but it doesn't change the fact that they're dying. We have our good days. It doesn't change the fact you're dying. It doesn't change the fact this life is short. So Jesus gives us a reality check. You think that your comfort, your ease, your popularity, your wealth, you think it's good now, it might feel good, but there will come a day when it will be gone. And what will be left? You and Jesus. That's all that matters. It's what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? There is nothing to be gained from pursuing the world. There is nothing to be gained from avoiding the self-denying, cross-taking following of Jesus. There is nothing to be gained but everything to lose. 
You know, they think initially, man, we've got everything to lose, but nothing to gain in following Jesus. He changes their perspective. You've got everything to lose anyway. But you've got everything to gain. Everything to gain if you follow me. You can be the wealthiest man on earth, and yet you will be utterly bankrupt before a holy God. Or you can be the poorest man on earth, and yet own it all as co-heirs with Christ. That's a pretty sweet deal. That's the life He calls us to. There will come a day when you and I will die. And on that day we will stand before our Creator. And there is no amount of wealth or human accolades or worldly trinkets. There are no degrees, no trophies, no investment funds, no beachfront properties, no career title that will shield you from the wrath of God. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ. Godly leaders are eternally minded. We keep our eyes fixed on Him. Which leads to the fourth mark, which is we are resolutely confident. We are confident men, confident women. He says, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. But when He comes in His glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels... But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, no, it's those who refuse to deny themselves and pick up their cross and follow me. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father. This is the second reason why a self-denying, cross-taking life is, in fact, the best of lives. Because on that last day, on that last day, will Christ be ashamed of you? If we live our lives ashamed of Him. How? How utterly tragic and terrifying that would be. If we lived our lives thinking that we were followers of Him thinking that we were true worshippers of Him, but really, we were worshippers of ourselves and a Savior made in our own image. Have we truly surrendered to the living God? Jesus says, look, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to gain eternal life, then treasure me. Treasure me above all other treasures. Treasure me above the promise of riches. Treasure me above the promise of comfort and accolades and praise and approval and glory. Treasure me above everything that this sick, dying, sin-stained world has to offer you. You see, it's a question of value. Everything in this world, when you put it in the light of Christ, it has no value. See, the light of Christ exposes it for what it truly is. Worthless. But when you look at Christ, you see Him as worthy. He is worthy. He alone is worthy. So do not be ashamed of me, He says, when the opposition comes. Do not be ashamed of me when the ridicule comes. Do not be ashamed of me when it means going to the hard places. Living in a place where there is no comfort, no ease, no sense of security. Do not be ashamed of me to take the gospel where Christ is not named or known, for he is worthy to be worshipped. George Whitfield, famous English preacher in the 1700s, said this, 
In our days, to be a true Christian is to be a scandal. To be a true Christian is to be a scandal. How true that is for our day too. To be a true Christian makes no sense to people. Makes no, now, you can be a fake Christian and that makes sense to people. You know, just kind of like the church-going Christian that just still lives your life the way you want to live your life. That, that, that makes sense to people. But to be a true Christian, one who's utterly devoted, utterly committed to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, putting all their trust in Him, that's scandalous. Somebody who's willing to, to, face, to face ridicule, to lose their job, to, to stand with Him, even in the face of opposition and persecution, that is scandalous. It makes no sense to the world. It makes no sense. But Jesus says, but I am coming. I am coming again, He says. And when I come, I come in glory and power and majesty. And the angels will come and they will declare His glory. You know, you know what the greatest evidence of the glory of Christ is to the angels? It's the fact that you would stand with Jesus. That you would follow Him. Causes the angels to rejoice. The angels to sing. That you, that I, that God's grace would come upon us. His spirit would open our eyes. That we would see Jesus. We would abandon this world. We would chase after Him. And we would worship Him. That we would worship Him. Causes the angels to rejoice. A godly leader will not be shaken by trials and troubles. For our confidence is resolute. It's in Christ. In Christ alone. So if we are to have healthy, growing, vibrant churches in our cities, especially, especially in the hard places, then it's going to take godly leaders who are self-denying, cross-taking, eternally minded, resolutely confident disciples of Jesus. So where are they? Where are these church leaders? Where are these churches? Where are the churches in the hard places? In the slums, in the poor communities? Willing to sacrifice comfort and ease for the sake of the kingdom. Where are the, the leaders who are born in those communities, who live there, who have a heart to stay there and to reach their neighbors? Where are the Christ-centered preachers in our poorest areas? We have a problem. We have a real problem. The reality is in most of our cities, Evangelical churches are not effectively reaching into traditionally poorer communities. Most outreach by most gospel-centered churches to poorer communities comes in the form of mercy ministry, by which I mean handouts, ministries of mercy, not gospel-centered church planting ministries. We'd much rather keep our ministry to the poor at arm's length. It's transaction, not relationship. When somebody is converted, from a poor community, they receive little to no effective discipleship. Existing theological opportunities, internship programs, training schools, Bible colleges are heavily weighted against those who grew up in poverty. They can't afford it, and they probably don't have the educational requirements to get into it. And even if they do, the training they get will not prepare them adequately to minister to their homes and the places they come from. Many churches that do exist in poor communities are often semi-heretical, at best, prosperity gospel. Many of the attendees have little or no understanding of the Bible at all. And many young believers from poor communities lack basic personal discipline and education required to rise up to become a leader in a local church. 
we have a problem. We have a problem. These barriers and others means that there are many millions, two-thirds of the world's population lives in poverty. Two-thirds of the world's population lives in poverty. Yet where are our seminaries? Where are our Bible colleges? Who are the publishing companies publishing books for? Who are our ministries, our church planting networks, seeking to reach? Many of our communities are completely cut off, unengaged, marginalized by the church in their own cities. No gospel churches, no Christians, no Christians, no leaders. So what's the solution? Well, we need, we need men with a heart to go. We need men who are self-denying, who are cross-taking, who are eternally minded, resolutely confident in Christ to leave a ministry of ease and comfort, to go into the hard places, to live there, to make disciples, and to raise up a church led by leaders from that community. This isn't easy. It's not easy. But keep your eyes on the prize. You know, we need to raise up a generation of self-denying, cross-taking, eternally-minded, confident disciples who have a heart to minister in the hard places. So church, how are you equipping your members to do that? How are you equipping your church to have a heart for that kind of ministry? Do we, do we just pity the poor? Do we just pity the poor areas of our city? Just pray for them? Or do we have a heart to raise up missionaries and send them there? To support them, to lovingly support them, to fund them? to acknowledge them, to, to respect them for the ministry that they do. How are we equipping disciples that we see from poor communities? People with real drug addiction, people with mental health issues, people with, with patterns of sinful behavior that have led to a train wreck of a life. How, do we, how are we developing discipleship ministries that equip and train men and women to minister who have very little education and struggle even to read? How are we doing that work? Let me give you four steps really quick to kind of wrap this up. Okay, if we're going to go and plant a church amongst a, in a poor community, then the first thing we need to be willing to do is give new converts responsibility quickly. That may seem counterintuitive, particularly for us more reformed-minded uh, people. Give new, new, new converts responsibility quickly? Oh, no, no, no. No, well, they need to prove themselves for a year at least. No, so we just put them on the door and they can hand out bulletins. You know, the most effective people to reach the people are those who are from it. And so when I'm doing ministry in, let's say we, we move to a, a, a favela in, in Rio de Janeiro or Kabira in, in Nairobi or a big slum there or a slum here in Lagos. If I'm doing ministry there, if I'm doing evangelism there, I want to raise up leaders from that community who live there, who have, who have social ties there, who already have existing relationships there, which means I need to be willing to give new converts responsibility quickly. I need to teach them how to study a Bible. I need to teach them how to lead a Bible study. And I'll sit there with them. You know, they, they're probably going to stray into heresy. But I need to correct them. But I need to be willing. I don't need to create this paternalistic thing that they need me. I need to be the one leading everything. Now, when somebody is raised up from a poor community, I need to be investing in them. I need to be equipping them, training them. I need to look for unlikely leaders. I need to look for unlikely leaders. You got an idea of what an elder or a pastor of a church looks like. Chances are, probably that person has never had a drug addiction in his past. That person probably never had any trouble with the law. 
But if we're going to see people convert in poor communities, they're going to come with real baggage. Often it's painful baggage. Often they've caused real hurt and they've got real problems. But it doesn't mean that they can't be equipped and trained and discipled to become leaders in the church. Look at the men that Jesus called to him. And we just read earlier, they were, they were ordinary, working class men, unlearned men. We're only looking for elders and leaders who just have seminary degrees and doctor in front of their name. If, if that's what we think that an elder or pastor is going to be, then we're never going to reach the poorest parts of our cities. We need to look for unlikely leaders. Number three, local churches and poor communities are going to have to take the lead in training the next generation of leaders. We need to get smarter and develop our own in-house contextualized training. So I love about what Femi's doing here with uh, Timmy Dial, with the Renew Network, with the cohort, with the in-house training. I believe the most effective way to train men for ministry is in the life of a local church. Rather than farming it out to seminaries and Bible colleges that often we can't afford and leaves us ill-equipped. Now, I'm not opposed to seminaries. I've got two seminary degrees, got a doctorate in Southern Seminary. I'm not opposed to seminary degrees. I'm going to tell you, it didn't equip me for ministry as much as my church has. It may have gifted me to preach, and it may have given me resources I can lean on that's valuable, but, the, the, but what made me a pastor was my church, my elders, people who invested in me, who mentored me, who trained me. Share your pulpit. Teach your congregation to be participants as you're training. Look for opportunities to give away op uh, uh, teaching, evangelism opportunities to younger men. Have young believers follow you when you do visits, personal evangelism. We learn better from imitation. This is often true. It's true in, in most poor communities around the world. We learn better by seeing more than we do by reading and writing. That's why the apprenticeship model works better. You know, if you're going to learn a trade, if you're going to become an electrician or a mechanic, well, you, you learn it by seeing it, by watching it, by observing it, by practicing it, by having an expert correct you as you're doing it. We learn side by side, not face to face. It's true as well. It's the way Jesus taught his disciples. And I think that's the better way to train men for ministry, side by side rather than face to face. And why do we have an idea of training that looks like this? You know, a perceived expert in the front and everybody else sitting there taking notes. That's good. It's not bad, but it's inadequate. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. We need to have a side by side model of training. We need to get good books in people's hands, though. Oh. Christian leaders are always readers. Femi said that. You cannot be a leader without reading. We, Christianity is a reading people. We're people of the word. And so we need to develop a good sense of reading, a hunger for reading. One thing I've, you know, some of the interns that we're working with, whether it's in Scotland or around the world, particularly some of those who have come out of addictions, one of the guys who work with in Scotland have come off real serious drug and alcohol addiction. And their life have been radically transformed. And they're now in our internship program. They have such a huge appetite for everything. So I just can't give them enough books. And they keep reading. The people I can't get to read are like the middle class suburban guys that got a college degree. They're bored of reading. They don't want to read. They just want to sit in front of TV and watch a sports show. You know, so the people who have an appetite for reading, we, we make the mistake of thinking just because someone is poor or illiterate or uneducated means they're stupid. They're not. They're not stupid. The same Holy Spirit is in them as is in you. Amen. They can be just as equipped. And in fact, many of them are more gifted. More gifted. It's not, it's, not a lack, it's not a lack of intelligence. It's often a lack of opportunity. 
It's a lack of investment. It's a lack of resources. It's a lack of us coming alongside them and giving them a voice. Now, um, for too many Christian ministries around the world, this is their attitude towards the poor. Well, we'll give them the crumbs from our table. We'll give them the books that get left behind at a conference. No, we'll give them the books that we're writing. And we'll translate it so that maybe they can understand it a little bit better. We don't want the crumbs on the table anymore. We want to see at the table. We want to be writing the books. We want to be training the people, starting our own internship programs, beginning our own church planting ministry. That's why I love what Acts 29 is doing with Church in Her Places. They've given us a seat at the table. They've made a real investment. And they're giving opportunities for men from poor communities all around the world to rise up and become leaders and to speak and to have a voice and to be heard. That's what it's going to take. And number four, and I've said it, so I just said it again. We, must shy, we mustn't shy away from teaching doctrine in our communities. You know, we need to protect the sheep from heresy. And the best way to do that is to expose them to truth. Teach doctrine. Teach doctrine. That's what discipleship means. Growing in knowledge. Growing in knowledge of the Lord. Don't be afraid of deep doctrinal truths. So our church in our place is apprenticeship, two-year apprenticeship. Each month, we, it's, a, it's a doctrinal driven apprenticeship. We talk about what is the gospel. talk about the Trinity. We talk about uh, the, the scriptures, the inspiration of the scriptures. We talk about uh, the, the spirit. And we talk about ecclesiology. We talk about doctrine. But we do it in a way where we're side by side. You see, the one thing that I think is missing a lot in, in kind of seminaries and Bible colleges, the thing that keeps us from straying back into heresy tends not to be the learning, but the relationships we form. Accountability comes often with relationship. And that's why I love the cohort model of training. We have men in our cohorts. We have cohorts of 10. So in Southern Africa, we've got 10 guys. Here in West Africa, we've got 10 guys. In Nairobi and East Africa, we've got 10 guys in these cohorts. You know what's going to keep them from straying back? Some of these guys come into our program believing things that I would consider heretical. But we still take them into our program because they're teachable and they're humble. What's going to keep them straying back? into the ways of thinking that they started with is those relationships. It's the relationships they form with each other. That's why it's important to be a part of a family of churches, to really link arms with other churches, to partner together. We need that. We desperately need that. Mark Dever wrote, Some today think that a person can be a baby Christian for a whole lifetime, but growth is treated as an optional extra for zealous disciples. But growth is a sign of life. If a tree is alive, it grows. If an animal is alive, it grows. Being alive means growing, and growing means increasing and advancing at least until death intercedes. That's true for us as Christians. We're to be growing, growing and growing until death intercedes, and even after that, we continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord for all eternity. So if we are to have healthy, growing, vibrant, churches in our cities, especially in the hard places, then it's going to take godly leaders who are self-denying, cross-taking, eternally minded, resolutely confident in the gospel. So let's commit to that work. Let's commit to sending out workers, training up leaders, supporting churches in our poorest communities for the sake of the millions living in the hard places across Nigeria, across West Africa, 
so that Christ might be worshipped where he's not being worshipped. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Amen. Let's pray.